So as I mentioned earlier, we're in, we were in John 6 this morning. I'm not going to reread that chapter, uh, but what's going to happen is I'm going to focus on, I'm going to highlight specific verses as we sort of move through it. That whole section, John 6, that we're on this morning is about Jesus as the bread of life, and it's this pretty long conversation, discourse, actually sermon, he said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum, says John 6, verse 59, but he's interacting with the people a lot, and in the course of him telling about the fact that he is the bread of life, we have some very, very interesting nuggets, and as I was reading and studying this passage this past week, they, they sounded so similar to, uh, they, were, they basically looked like proof texts for the Canada door, which is why I um, wrote what I did for the sermon title, Did Jesus Write the Canons of Dort? Um, I think there's a, a lot of connection here. So, as much as we say, and as Christians say, our confession is Jesus, that's it. And as much as we say, we believe in the Bible, teaching the Bible, period. As much as we say that and want to say that, with so many different understandings out there of who Jesus is, with so many varieties of types of biblical interpretation, any responsible church has to say more than no creed but Christ. As nifty a phrase as that is, and how true that is to a certain extent, no creed but Christ, but who is Christ? What do we mean by Christ? In our day and age, and this goes back to shortly after Jesus ascended even, there were a lot of different views on who Christ is. So we have to explain that more. What we call our ecumenical creeds bring us one layer deeper than it, into what we believe than just saying no creed but Christ. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed. These creeds, holding to these creeds, they basically set us apart from non-Christians, from false religions, and from cults who might have flavors of Christianity but not really be Christian per se. We agree on the contents of these with all Christians. So with Lutherans, Baptists, Bible churches, Catholics, Methodists, and, and any other stripe of Christian church that you can think of. What we call the three forms of unity bring us one layer deeper than that. They're quite broad in that many Christians would agree with most of what is in them, but they also hit at some matters that are more distinctive to Reformed churches, and, and one clear example of that is, is infant baptism, with which certain Christians don't hold to. That's clearly taught in these. Um, what are distinct, basically Reformed people and Presbyterians, for the most part, hold to these documents. Um, the canons of Dort are probably the most distinctive of these confessions. 
Heidelberg Catechism, Belgian Confession are, are broader. They don't get into as many specifics, but the canons of Dort do. And what a lot of people would say is that they give us the five points of Calvinism. John Calvin is the 16th century theologian that most people associate with the Reformed faith, so much so that Reformed people a lot of times are called Calvinists. None of our confessions was even written by John Calvin, so that's not totally accurate, but, but that's okay. We're fine being Calvinists. John Calvin was a one great guy. Of our confessions, the canons adored is probably the least familiar to us. I did do a sermon on it maybe five years ago, but I'm not expecting that you remember that. It was uh, a sermon on each one of these, so we kind of hit it in more detail than we're going to do tonight. The canons, these, this was one document that came out of the Synod of Dort, which was a big international synod held in the Dutch city of Dortrecht from 1618 to 1619. It wasn't just a Dutch thing, even though it was held in the Dutch city of Dortrecht. There were 27 representatives from internationally, for sure Germany, um, England, Scotland, France, so that region of the world. But um, more, more than this came out of that Senate, they had all sorts of discussions about all sorts of things. Our basic church order, how that came out of that Senate, the idea of having a second Sunday service that was more teaching in focus came out of that Senate. Another little gem that came out of that Senate Different from the Presbyterians, who are more strict on Sunday observance than the Reformed, the Reformed idea came out of there of that playing sports on Sunday is fine and okay as long as it doesn't interfere with worship. So that was more open than the Presbyterians. And that actually over on this side of the, the Atlantic, the CRC took that on. That is still the CRC official position as far as how to live out the fourth commandment in terms of sports. Playing sports is fine on Sunday as long as it doesn't interfere with worship. So a whole lot of other things were done at that synod. These, the canons of Dort, came out of, because of some seminary professor's questionable teaching. And while the Heidelberg Catechism and the Belgic Confession cover the full range of the faith, the canons are a response to that particular issue that that seminary professor had brought up. They, folk, they narrow in on the doctrine of salvation and how that works. Belgian Confession, Heidelberg Catechism, broad range of things. Canons of Dort, very narrow. They're meant to talk about one particular issue, the doctrine of salvation. And one way we might summarize the canons is to say they are especially about God's sovereign grace in salvation. And then that's approached from a few different angles. Um, like I said earlier, basically five issues, which can be summarized with that acronym TULIP, this document 
is probably the most unknown of our confessions. It's also, for sure, the most criticized by non-Calvinists and even by some Reformed people. People have said it's just too harsh. They've even said it's not biblical. But I think we can prove that wrong tonight because I think the main points, you'll have to see what you think, I'm pretty sure the main points of the canons are right here in John 6 in these statements that Jesus made. So I think you'd be pretty hard-pressed to say they're not biblical. I think, I think Jesus says this stuff. So we're going to be learning something about the canons in our time tonight and more about what Jesus teaches in John 6. Verse 29, verses 28 and 29, we're going to go and order the chapter. The you in TULIP is unconditional election, and that's verses 28 and 29. We looked at those verses actually very closely in the sermon this morning. And the short of it is, there is nothing that we can do to earn God's favor and love. Ephesians says God predestines us, chooses his people from before the foundations of the earth were established. It's the only way we could be saved. We're not just sick in sin and somehow in our sickness manage to crawl to Jesus. The Bible says we are dead in our sin and trespasses. A dead person can't do anything. A dead person cannot make him or herself alive. The people in Jesus' day, back to the question and answer in 28 and 29 here in chapter 6, they wanted to know what to do to be saved. And Jesus says the quote-unquote work God requires is to believe. In other words, No work is required on your end. Just belief. Just responding to the invitation to turn to Jesus. The professor in question at the Senate of Dort, his name was Jacobus Arminius, he was saying that the predestination in the Bible is more a God foreseeing, foreseeing something. He was like, Why are some people saved and some not? He says, because God can look ahead in the future in his omniscience, and he sees in the future that that Bob will choose to believe. And that's how he makes his choice, because he knows Bob or Sally is going to make the good choice someday. Unconditional election, and I believe the Bible and Jesus here are saying there are no conditions to salvation. Nothing is done or not done on our part. It's all God. Second Timothy 1.9 says, God saved us and called us with a holy calling, not in virtue of our works, but in virtue of his own purpose and the grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus ages ago. Of course, we're called to respond We exercise our faith. So don't get me wrong there. We do something active, but it's because of a prior work in our hearts already. We exercise a faith that God put in our hearts. I I really believe that every 
believer understands this, even if we wouldn't all get the theological formulation just right, like these guys tried to do. But just from a very day-to-day practical perspective, who do you pray to when you pray? When you think of the fact that you're a child of God, And you think about all the benefits and comfort and joy and strength that that brings you in your life. Who do you thank? It's a very obvious answer for a Christian. You thank God. I don't know of a believer who would pat themselves on the back and say, Self, you sure are bright and wise. Good job on finding the way to salvation and the problem of sin. No, that's not how it goes. God finds us. God saves us. And if you pray to God thanking him for your salvation, instead of thanking yourself, in my book, you believe in unconditional election. Next, the I in tulip, verse 37, irresistible grace. In verse 37, Jesus says, All the Father gives me, will come to me. All the Father gives to me will come to me. In the end, what this has to do with is that in the end, a person cannot resist the grace of God. Who God wants, God gets. God wins over our wills, no matter how stubborn they are. So another verse in this chapter 44 says, unless the Father draws him, God draws. There's a force there, a strong force, so strong that sooner or later, if God wants us to, we will come. And and a lot of times people have described that drawing as a wooing, a wooing. The Father woos us, and he does it in a way that we can't resist. That's how strong his love and his grace is. The P in tulip, verse 39, perseverance of the saints. Jesus says in verse 39, I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. This is one of the most comforting truths in all of the Bible, that once God's grace has grabbed you, he won't let go. As in Christ alone says, believing this doctrine, of course, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. That's a contemporary description of the perseverance of the saints. You add to no power of hell, no scheme of man, add in there yourself your own doubting, your sins, the storms of life. This truth says that none of it can take you away from Jesus. Really, the preservation of the saints is the idea. God preserves us. We persevere, yeah, but only because of God's work preserving us. It's a tremendous comfort for us and for our loved ones. Verse 44, and again, I I know there there are sermons on file that get into these in more detail if you really want. We are, there's big issues in all of these. 
we're really sort of skimming. You can read more. I'd be happy to talk to you more about any of this. We're moving right along. We're up to the fourth one already. Verse 44 for the L, limited atonement. No one can come unless the Father who sent me draws him. Atonement isn't a word we use. It's a familiar word, but I don't think we use it a ton. It basically means at one with. And it basically refers to salvation, because in salvation, Jesus made us one with God. We talked about the recipe for salvation this morning. And the recipe is faith, belief in Jesus. And in a certain sense, so this is, atonement is limited somehow. That's what this means. In a certain sense, atonement is not, doesn't end up being for all people because all people don't believe. All people aren't saved. And that's the sense in which it is limited atonement. The atonement is not limited in the sense that all couldn't be saved. The gospel invitation to partake of Jesus, like we talked about this morning, it's for everyone. And if everyone would respond, Jesus' work is sufficient to cover the sins of the world of everyone. The thing is, the Bible clearly says there are people who reject Jesus. Jesus' work on the cross it turns out, was not for those people. If it was, they'd be saved, right? Think about it. If Jesus died for everyone's sins and certain people aren't saved, then somehow Jesus didn't quite get the job done on the cross. Jesus didn't accomplish the salvation of some people. But the fact is, Jesus did accomplish exactly what he set out to on the cross, the saving of his people, the saving of all who believe. These days, a lot of people call this the definite atonement, and that gives it a little different focus. Jesus died for all the people God intends to save. Not one person is missed. Maybe we could say focused atonement. Jesus Jesus did not just die to make atonement possible for people. Jesus died to accomplish atonement for people. Jesus' death on the cross actually works. Jesus' death and saves people. That's what limited atonement is about. And then finally, the T of tulip. We see it in verse 65. No one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. So the focus for total depravity is No one can come unless. A lot of times this is called total inability. We're totally unable to come to God on our own. Total depravity doesn't mean we're totally depraved. It doesn't mean we're as evil as we could be. No, by God's grace, you and I aren't as bad as we could be. By God's grace, the world is not as bad as it could be. We are not all serial killers. That could be an example of it being as bad as it could be. Sin could be worse. The world could be worse. Total depravity means we are sinners to such an extent that we're totally stuck in sin. There's no one righteous, not even one, says Romans 3. So total depravity gets at the seriousness of sin, the extent of it, how helpless it makes us. All things that we would want to minimize. There was once... A little boy in third grade, must have been 
eight or so, if he was in third grade. I might have told you about this little boy before. He was waiting to get on the bus after school. The school was Sylvan Christian in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Next to the school driveway was a home. For some reason, this boy decided to throw rocks at the side of the house. It wasn't brick. It had like this siding. Why the little boy did this exactly, we'll never know. Maybe it was to impress his friends. As we would tell our children, this was not a good choice. This was not a good choice. Apparently, those rocks hitting the side of the house were very, very loud and not appreciated. There may have been a a baby sleeping in that house even. The lady of the house came running out, quite upset, asked for the little boy's phone number. You can tell it was an otherwise good little boy because he gave his actual number to this woman. Afterwards, he thought, I didn't, maybe I didn't have to do that, but it was the right thing to do. He gave his number. This little boy forgot about this for a while until his mom and dad got a phone call the next day. And they went to this boy, and they asked him whether the story was true. The boy denied it vehemently, multiple times. One last time, the boy's father said, Greg, did you throw rocks at that house? Finally, the boy said, well, I might have tossed some pebbles. The gem of the tea of tulip is that it ensures we take sin seriously instead of minimizing our sin, which is always our tendency to make it less than it actually is, to tell a different story about what we did. The thing is, when you minimize it, You don't need Jesus quite as much, do you? An effect of minimizing it is that the cross isn't quite as important. God's love isn't quite as needed if we really aren't so bad off, if we are really just tossing pebbles. In a sense, total depravity, which is... that first head of doctrine, it makes all the rest of these truths that Jesus teaches absolutely have to be. We are stuck. We are in big trouble. If we are going to be saved, it's not going to be through anything we can do. We need God to sovereignly step in with his grace and take care of business. We need the atonement of Jesus on the cross that zeroes in on each one of God's children and actually, definitely saves them, accomplishes salvation for us. We need a grace that you can't resist because we'll keep trying to wiggle away. We need an election and a love that's unconditional because we will only keep messing up things if we depend on our work. And we need a God who not only saves us, 
but who keeps us safe. The storms of life would surely sweep us away, except they don't, because he holds us firm and he will to the very end. So to me, in the end, the big, bad, strict canons of Dort are are telling us in a more precise way, a more theological way, drawing in lots of scripture what Jesus is telling us in John 6. God has done the work through me, says Jesus, his son. I am the answer. I planned the work. I've done the work. Turn to me in your need today. Today. 